Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Clarifying Catholicism. Ordinarily, we explore theological topics, but in this series, we investigate the writings of, in my opinion, the most important little-known philosopher of the 20th century, Javier Zubiri. This is not a theological series at all whatsoever. However, if you want to do good theology, you'll need a good philosophical backbone first. So if you want to check out the rest of the episodes in this series, check the link in the description. Without further ado, on to the show. Last episode, we introduced some distinctions in the process of attaining knowledge. First, there is primordial apprehension, meaning things are apprehended without reference to other things. It's just raw stimulation. I see forest, I apprehend forest as a single thing. Not as a collection of trees, not as a thing that is green, it is just a unified thing that I am responding to. All animals and humans participate in primordial apprehension. We do not apprehend what we call reality when we primordially apprehend things, rather we only apprehend the content of the real. Then, there is ulterior apprehension, in which things are apprehended in reality, meaning they are apprehended with reference to other things. I see forest, I apprehend forest as a collection of trees. Reality is defined as formalized content, meaning the content that impresses itself upon us is formalized in relation to other content. Now recall how ulterior apprehension depends on primordial apprehension, since first of all, you can't relate things to other things unless you've apprehended them as unified things to begin with. Secondly, our sense organs, which includes our nervous system and brain, are responsible for formalizing content, and they are shaped by real content. If someone smashes my face in with a brick, I'm probably going to be seeing and thus apprehending reality a bit different for a while. A couple more reminders. Our sense organs that are responsible for apprehending reality are not limited to what have been traditionally referred to as the physical senses. Rather, those senses that have been in the past called intellective senses by ancient philosophers and mental senses by modern philosophers are just as physical as the other senses. There is one sense in particular that is responsible for connecting the dots of apprehensions into the constellation that is reality, and that is our sense of towards which is kind of like a sense of direction. The sense of towards is a sense that guides us in connecting various things we apprehend into the network of reality. In terms of a classical philosopher might understand, it is a teleology that is imminent rather than extrinsic. And this sense of towards is a physical concrete sense just like taste, touch, and smell. Zubiri believes that the ancient distinction between the functions of the body and the soul is a detrimental assumption that ruined Western philosophy's direction from the start, since it led to a flawed conception of the soul as an almighty judge that towers over the body. This, of course, led to the idea that reality is something totally distinct from the physical world. It is something spiritual that the soul alone could access. And this, as we explored in previous episodes, led to a lot of problems. Modern philosophy didn't really solve these problems. Instead of an almighty soul towering over the lowly body, it was the all-powerful mind that stood superior to the inferior body. Basically, it kept the distinction between physical and intellective functions. 
Today, it is quite apparent, thanks to advances in neuroscience and biology, that there is an intrinsic unity between our so-called physical and intellective organs. Our sensible and rational capabilities rely on each other and shape each other. Let's move forward. Last episode, I mentioned that there are two kinds of ulterior apprehensions, logos and reason. I've already described how ulterior apprehensions involve connecting things we primordially apprehend with each other. There's a couple ways this happens, but in its most basic form, when we apprehend something on its own, we place it in what Zubiri calls a field. Last episode, I mentioned how you could think of the field like a magnetic field. When you put one individual magnet next to others, its magnetic field will not only be affected by other magnets, but its own field will affect its surrounding magnets. In philosophical terms, the way we apprehend things depends on other things we've already apprehended, and the way we apprehend those other things can depend on a singular apprehension. All right, let's look at an example. If I know that light bulbs, computers, and televisions are bright, I am placing them in all of the field of things that are bright. Let's say I learn or apprehend that electricity is what causes brightness in technology. This new fact would impact the way I think about light bulbs, computers, and televisions. Hence, a singular apprehension has changed the field. Likewise, the next time I see a bright piece of technology, I will assume that it is powered by electricity. And that is how a singular apprehension is molded by a pre-existing field. This is the ulterior apprehension's field mode. The field has two moments, among, which puts things in reference to each other, and by, which adds a functionality between things. For example, let's say you figure out that your finger hurts when you touch a hot stove. When you touch a hot stove, the real force of imposition draws the stove and pane close together in the field. It places them among each other. The moment of by informs you that perhaps it was the heat of the stove that caused your pain. This process of connecting things in the field is called logos. And this idea of logos is in some ways similar to the ancient one, but is also very different. In classical philosophy, it was believed that things had what are called essences. Essences are a tendency for things to behave in a certain way. For example, a tree essentially grows, or philosophy is essentially confusing. What caused these essences to exist, though? Was it something physical? Classical philosophers said no. Recall that in classical philosophy, the ultimate reality exists beyond the physical world. It is the spiritual realm, the realm of the soul, that commands the physical to behave according to a static, unchanging set of laws. And the director of all essences, according to the classical model, was called the Logos, and the Logos was a spiritual entity. Remember, though, that Zubiri rejects this model. The ultimate reality isn't beyond us, but is rather around us. However, unlike a lot of modern philosophers would claim, reality is not controlled by us, rather it is determined by real content that imposes itself upon us. The real content shapes not only what we sense, but how we sense it. And our association of things we sense is driven by our physical, not spiritual or mental, sense of towards. And it is this sense of towards that, like all other physical senses, determines what things are associated with each other. But that determination relies on the real composition of real things. That is the content. And it is also dependent on how the real world has shaped our senses. 
which are physical organs that apprehend things. Thus, Zubiri defines logos as the physical moment in which things in the field are united. So just as classical philosophers hold, there is something at work in the universe that binds things to the laws of nature. However, unlike classical philosophers, this binding thing is not spiritual or eternal, rather it is physical and dynamic, just like all other physical things are. Let's look at an example. I say that it is in cilantro's nature to be delicious. Cilantro is essentially delicious. Most sane people would agree, but it is only because our tongues have been genetically predisposed to enjoy cilantro that we associate cilantro with deliciousness. It's not because some mystical and static reality tells us that cilantro is delicious. Rather, it is caused by an imminent and dynamic sense of taste and towards that is shaped by real cilantro and real taste buds. So there is an accursed subset of the human population to whom cilantro tastes like soap. This is a real thing. If this terrible trait were somehow to infect the rest of the human population, to the point at which all people agreed cilantro tasted like soap, cilantro's essence will have changed from tasting delicious to tasting like soap. Thus, again, Zubiri believes that essences exists and the Logos directs them. However, there's nothing spiritual about them and they are not static. Essences are concrete, imminent qualities of things. They can change over time, and they are directed by the physical, ulterior apprehension that is called Logos. At this moment, I want to reinforce a key theme in Zubiri's philosophy. Reality, intellection, and Logos are dynamic. They are dynamic because their operations are shaped by other things over time. If a species over millions of years loses its ability to see the color blue, then the color blue ceases to exist, since reality depends on how we formalize content. But this does not mean that reality, intellection, and logos are relativistic. I can't just decide that chopping off my arm with a machete isn't going to hurt. Our senses, and therefore the way we formalize content, are at the mercy of real content. Thus, and this is the key thing, reality is dynamic, but not subjective. Zubiri's philosophy fits remarkably well with the way we understand cosmology and biology today. Most scientists agree that the universe's laws are more dynamic than static. Even for the human species, it is true that someone from the Sahara Desert will have a vastly different sense of what hot is than someone from the Alaskan tundra. Reality is at the mercy of our sense organs, and those sense organs, as well as the real content that influence them, can change over time. The beauty of Zubiri's vision is that he retains a reliance on the real while bridging the gap between the physical and spiritual or mental realms that were arguably installed by Plato and Aristotle. Reality and Logos aren't alien things imposed upon the physical world, they are products of the physical world that in turn tell us about the physical world, as dictated by the real physical content that has shaped them. Now a key part of Logos is the dynamic between primordial and ulterior apprehensions. Let me use an example. Let's say you meet someone, let's call him Jason on the street for the first time who greets you with a smile and a firm handshake. Something about that encounter delivers an immediate primordial apprehension of friendliness. 
Now let's say while shaking his hand and smiling, he admits that he's a serial killer. Suddenly, you can't seem to look at that guy the same way anymore. Despite the fact that he's still smiling and shaking your hand, just like before, learning this new fact about him, this ulterior apprehension, which connects him to murder, changes the way you perceive him. No matter how hard you try, you can no longer look or primordially apprehend Jason the same way. Next time you primordially sense Jason, perhaps you will sense fear. Now, this dynamic between primordial and ulterior apprehensions is determined by a few things. First is remaining. The way a thing impresses itself upon you will determine how much of it remains, which will thus determine the dynamic between primordial and ulterior apprehensions. Finding out that Jason, whose hand you shook, is a serial killer definitely leaves quite the impression that will last in your mind forever. However, if Jason had said something like he was just on the way to the bus, that probably wouldn't last very long in your mind. Won't really change the way you think of him when you see him, or primordially apprehend him again. Thus, the way something remains, which is determined by the force of imposition from the real, determines the dynamic between primordial and ulterior apprehensions. Second is towards. We've already talked about towards quite a bit, but it basically determines what things that dynamic will exist between. Again, if Jason tells you he's a serial killer, it will trigger a dynamic between your apprehension of Jason, your apprehension of serial killers, your apprehension of fear, unease, and pleasantness. Basically, if one is predisposed by their sense of towards to dislike serial killers, then you will surely dislike Jason. Third is distance. When we sense a difference between primordial and ulterior apprehensions, we distance ourselves from the things in the field of reality. Let's unpack that with an example. Your first impression, your primordial apprehension of Jason was one of pleasantness. Something about that initial impression of smiling and shaking his hand made you feel great. However, learning he's a serial killer didn't really match up with your initial impression of him. There's thus a sense of disharmony between your initial primordial apprehension of pleasantness and your ulterior apprehension of connecting Jason with being a serial killer. This disharmony produces distance. You take a step back from everything you thought you knew or felt about Jason to reevaluate things. In a sense, this happens when your expectations do not correspond to reality. Fourth is reorientation, which is how this distance is traversed. It basically closes up that gap that was opened up by distance. Upon learning that Jason is a serial killer, distancing yourself from the initial good vibes you got from him, you conclude that you do not like Jason. This reorientation, of course, is guided by your sense of towards. Fifth is the field of liberty. Just because you don't like Jason now doesn't mean you always will. For example, when he laughs and says he was joking, perhaps you could distance and reorient your apprehensions of him yet again. The field of liberty ensures that we are always open for further distance and reorientation regarding any subject. Sixth is retention. This is what keeps us dwelling in the real thing. We don't just walk away from our encounter with Jason and never remember it again. We keep thinking about it, and this tension between primordial and ulterior apprehensions may linger on. Let's take another gruesome example to put this together. Let's say you don't know what a radioactive decay sign looks like. You see it and apprehend cool-looking sign before entering a place chocked full of radiation. Your primordial apprehension is cool-looking sign. However, upon experiencing a case 
of radiation poisoning, your doctor tells you that that sign actually meant radioactive decay. So the connection between the sign and looking cool is weakened, while the connection between that sign and danger is drawn. Next time you see that sign, you probably won't primordially apprehend cool-looking sign. Rather, you apprehend danger. Thus, the Logos has connected that sign with danger. The immense pain you feel from radiation poisoning ensures that this interaction, this remaining, in both primordial and ulterior apprehensions is quite strong. The Torts has guided your association between radioactive sign, radiation poisoning, and danger. Distance weakened the strength between the initial primordial apprehension, cool-looking thing and sign, and reorientation forged a new connection between that sign and danger. Your field of liberty ensures that perhaps there are moments you'll see that sign and you won't think danger, such as when you see someone wearing a t-shirt with the radiation sign on it. This whole process lingers in your memory, thus it is retained. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground about Logos in this episode. Next time we'll talk about what judgment is. Until then, have a great day. God bless you.